0: Hello, listeners. This is the Labor Know Your Rights podcast. I'm your host, Dave. This podcast is brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals. Episode 1. Weingarten Rights. An employee, the right to union representation during an investigatory interview. These rights established by the Supreme Court in 1975 in the case of P. Weingarten Incorporated must be claimed by the employee. It is very important that every member understands their Weingarten rights and when to use them. The supervisor has no obligation to inform an employee that he or she is entitled to union representation. What is an investigatory interview? An investigatory interview is one of, in which a supervisor questions an employee to obtain information which could be used as a basis for discipline or ask an employee to defend his or her conduct. If an employee has a reasonable belief that the dis that discipline or discharge may result from what he or she says the employee has the right to request union representation. What is an investigatory interview? An investigatory interview is one in which a supervisor questions an employee to obtain information which could be used as a basis for discipline or asks an employee to defend his or her conduct. garden Rules Rule number one. The employee must make a clear request for a union representation before or during the interview. The employee can't be punished for making this request. Rule number two. After the employee makes the request, the supervisor has three options. A. Grant the request and delay the interview until the union representative arrives and has a chance to consult privately with the employee. R.B. Deny the request and end the interview immediately. R.C. Give the employee a choice of having the interview without the representative or ending the interview. Rule number three. If a supervisor denies the request and continues to ask questions, this is an unfair labor practice and the employee has a right to refuse to answer. The employee cannot be disciplined for such refusal but is required to sit there until the supervisor terminates the interview. Leaving before this happens may constitute punishable insubordination. Union representatives' rights under Weingarten Although you are there as a witness, you have the right to be informed by the supervisor of the subject matter of the interview. Take the employee aside for a private conference before questioning begins. Speaking during the interview, request that the supervisor clarify a question so that what is being asked is understood, give employee advice on how to answer a question, provide additional information to the supervisor at the end of questioning. You do not have the right to tell the employer not to answer, nor obviously to give false answers. An employee can be disciplined for refusing to answer questions. An employee has no right to the presence of a union representative where the meeting is merely for the purpose of conveying work instructions, training, or communicating needed corrections to the employee's work techniques. The employee is assured by the employer prior to the interview that no discipline or employment consequences can result from the interview. The employer has reached a final decision to impose certain discipline on the employee prior to the interview and the purpose of the interview is to inform the employee of the discipline or to impose it. Any conversation or discussion about the previously determined discipline which is initiated by the employee and without employer encouragement or instigation after the employee is informed of the action. Even in the above four circumstances, the employee can still ask for representation. Most employees will permit a representative to attend even when not required to. Okay I know some of you will think hey I've been through these interviews before and had no problem I can handle it myself so let's talk about the reasons for having a union representative with you. Your representative will be there as a witness to what is said by you and by the supervisor. This can become very important when a supervisor misunderstand something that you have said. They also have a great knowledge of the Collective Bargaining Agreement, or CBA. This is important because part of their job is to help enforce the individual agreements within the CBA, what is called a past practice. Sometimes companies will have policies that they've set but they don't enforce and it becomes routine that these Policies are broken, and to then try to reinitiate them is a violation, and therefore any discipline based on reinitiating these past practices uh, becomes void. Depending on uh, new policies, if union has not been notified, uh, these new policies, any new policies, could be up for new negotiations, depending on what the policy is in regards it is important that a union rep that is familiar with the CBA be there to determine if a new policy is being initiated and if it has been negotiated by the union or not. Labor organizations will keep records of investigatory interviews and the results. This is designed to keep a record to ensure that Uh, Discipline is dealt with fairly among all members of the collective bargaining unit. It is important for the union to be able to keep the company from disciplining people based on how they are liked or any other reason beyond the actual incident. And finally, they are there to aid you and support you. This can be very calming to have somebody in your corner and know that you're not facing this interview by yourself. Okay, to wrap up this section of the podcast. If you are requested to attend a meeting, you need to attend it and find out what it's in regards to. If they start asking you questions, you can ask them if the answers may lead to any form of disciplinary action. If they say yes, it is your right to have a union representative present at the time of questioning. You can invoke these rights by saying, I respectfully decline to answer any questions until I have a union representative present. Remember, these rights are not automatic. You must invoke them by such a statement. And now, to some news. Final Rule Executive Order 13658 Establishing a Minimum Wage for Contractors On September 16, 2015, the Department of Labor published a notice in the Federal Register to announce that beginning January 1, 2016, the Executive Order 13658 minimum wage rate is increased to $10.15 per hour. This executive order minimum wage rate generally must be paid to workers performing work on or in connection with covered contracts. Additionally, beginning January 1, 2016, tipped employees performing work on or in connection with covered contracts generally must be paid a minimum wage of $5.85 per hour. The Department of Labor Wage and Hour Divisions are proposing to update the regulations governing Which executive, administrative, and professional employees, white-collar workers, are entitled to the Fair Labor Standards, Acts, Minimum Wage, and Overtime Pay Protections? The Department last updated the regulations in 2004, and the current salary threshold for exemption is $455 per week. With this proposed rule, the Department seeks to update the salary level required for exemption to ensure that the FLSA's intended overtime protections are fully implemented to simplify the identification of non-exempt employees, thus making the executive, administrative, and professional employee exemption easier for employers and workers to understand and apply. The Department's proposal to set the standard salary level at the 40th percentile a weekly earnings for full-time salaried workers represents the most appropriate line of demarcation between exempt and non exempt employees. The salary level minimizes the risk that employees legally entitled to overtime will be subject to misclassification based solely on the salaries they receive without excluding from exemption an acceptable high number of employees who meet the duties test. As proposed, this would raise the salary threshold from $455 a week equivalent of $23,660 a year to about $970 a week or $50,440 a year in 2016. The Department is also proposing to automatically update the standard salary and HCE total annual compensation requirements to ensure that they remain meaningful tests for distinguishing between bona fide executive, administrative, and professional workers who are not entitled to overtime and overtime-protected white collar workers. In addition, the department discusses the current duties test and solicits suggestions for additional occupation examples including non-discretionary bonuses to satisfying a portion of the standard salary requirement. And now a little history. The Patterson Silk Strike of 1913 One of the oldest industrial cities in the United States, Patterson had a long history of conflicts between mill owners and textile workers. But the Silk Strike of 1913 was the biggest, longest, and most dramatic strike in Patterson history. It had began when the broad silk weavers in Patterson's largest mill walked off the job to protest owner henry duhardi's attempt to increase the number of looms each weaver tended from two to four although duhardi promised that wages would increase under the new system the weavers anticipated the four loom system would eventually increase unemployment and job competition and decrease wages broad silk weavers from the other mills soon joined the strike Seeing the adoption of the form loom system as a threat to their way of life. Dyer's helpers and ribbon weavers also went on strike, effectively halting silk manufacturing in Patterson. Their goals, however, differed from those of the broad silk weavers. Dyer's helpers struck to achieve the eight hour day forty four hour week rather than to protest the stretch out. Ribbon's weavers joined the strike to protect the right of free speech which they believed was threatened by the arrest of speakers and peaceful picketers for disorderly conduct and unlawful assembly at the beginning of the strike silk workers invited the industrial workers of the world i w w to help them elizabeth gurley flynn was the most important of the IWW organizers in Patterson. She was on the site of the pickets every day, delivered numerous speeches, and organized Tuesday night meetings for female silk workers who compromised half the strikers, and for the wives and daughters of male strikers. Flynn's efforts helped cultivate female leaders like Hannah Silverman, a 17-year-old male worker who became an effective public speaker. When the silk workers reenacted the events of the strike, in a pageant performed at madison square gardens in new york city silverman led the parade up fifth avenue to the garden the i w w philosophy of solidarity played a key role in the strike the majority of silk workers were foreign-born or the children of immigrants they did not share a common language and cultural differences could lead to misunderstandings. Although manufacturers tried to exploit the tension and divide the strikers by appealing to the patriotic sentiments of native-born silk workers, the IWW managed to maintain unity by emphasizing the interests and experiences the strikers shared. The strike lasted five months. Both workers and industrialists were unified in their demands, but the manufacturers were able to outlast the strikers. The strike was nevertheless a partial victory for the workers. Although the Dyer's helpers did not gain the eight-hour day, the weavers did protect the two-loom system and preserve the right of free speech, both on the street and in the factory. In 1919, Patterson silk workers won the eight-hour day, but by that time, the Patterson silk industry was already in decline. After the 1913 strike, many mill owners began relocating much of their business to Pennsylvania. Others withdrew from production. Introduction of nylon and rayon during the Great Depression sealed the industry's fate. And to wrap this one up, I'd like to thank our sponsor, the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first.